I was called a month ago by Gerhard Schwantner, the guy that runs Selling Power magazine. And he said, Jeffrey, tell me about your coin business card. I said, Gerhard, do you have one? He goes, yeah, I do. I said, uh, you know where it is? He goes, yeah, just a second. And like Gary, he leaves the video and comes back and he holds a coin up. I said, Gerhard, about how long have you had that? He said, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years. I said, Gerhard, do I have to say anything else? <laughs> 20 years. Me. I've had yours 20 years. Who keeps anything for 20 seconds? <laughs> People get a business card, they photo it, that goes into their Evernotes or whatever, and it somehow deciphers what your fax number is, like anyone gives a shit, and, and you throw away the card. No one ever throws away my card. Someone always shows it to somebody else. And, and the answer, people go, well, how much does that cost? It doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> it doesn't matter. If you have to ask how much, you don't even get it. So the, the challenge that people have is they're not memorable enough to go from one thing to the next thing. They just don't have it. And so I'm, I'm challenging everybody to take their marketing department. If they have more than five people in there to cap, everyone count off by twos and shoot the ones. You'll cut your expenses in half and you'll have a lot of motivated twos. But in the meantime, the marketing people don't understand creativity at all. And I'm going to give you an example. They have a PMS or PMA color. You know, we're PMA. Pantone matching system. Right. Um, Pantone. It's Pantone, yeah. right. And it's a green, but it's Pantone number 384. Who gives a shit about what the color is other than the marketing people? And the answer is nobody. Right. It's about our brand. <laughs> oh, seriously? Seriously, it's about your brand? You're known by 482? That's your, that's your boom? Or are you known for quality? Well, and, and a lot of new business owners get caught up in that type of stuff too. They'll spend months trying to figure out the right font and the right color instead of just going and doing business. You're better off doing it by hand. But this is the biggest challenge. It's now Christmas time or uh, holiday time. I don't want to piss anybody off. Um, and you'll get cards in the mail, correct? Yep. You probably get less of them because mm -hmm. now people can do e-cards. But why would you do any card? Why would your marketing department create a business card and wonder if you should use the word is or was and spend an hour debating it? Why don't you go? I, I have an affiliation with a company called Hippo Video in India, hippovideo.io. If you want a URL to put in the chat, it's usehippovideo.com. That's, that's my URL for them. Why wouldn't you just make a video for Christmas and send it out to people? Hey, I know it's been a tough year and, and uh, we're very optimistic about 2021 and I'm actually rededicating myself to all my customers. I wanted to make sure you were included in this message because I'm grateful for your business. Talk soon, be with your family, be safe be healthy boom where's that video yeah where's that video the people the people that don't i i, I don't know how to describe this 
but people who send out business Christmas cards are 20 years old. They're 20 years ago, past. The video is the new black. Video is the, I, in the book it says, video is not the new black, it's the new green. Money. And the people who are endorsing it and the people who are embracing it get the fact that they can actually be perceived as human, different, emotional, valuable. That What do you do with a Christmas card when you get it? You put a piece of scotch tape on it and you hang it around your desk for a month or something and then you throw it out or do you just throw it out right away? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's an, but if you got a video from somebody, you go, Bob, you got to see, look at this video. And Bob might be the CEO of the company. Yep. And it stays so, there, right? It's, it stays on your computer. It stays on your phone. It doesn't go into the garbage. Correct. And you have to look at this thing. I, people will call me. I send a video out to somebody. They'll call me and go, how'd you do that? And that person becomes a customer. Along the way, by late 2013, I realized we needed to get rid of all of our other work and just go all in, which is another big, was a big risk and a step for us. Um, you know, I read Purple Cow by uh, Seth Godin, and my, one of my clients gave it to me, actually. And so that just really kind of, you know, reinforced this idea that, be great at one thing, right? The natural tendency is try to be great or do, especially as entrepreneurs, to get into everything. And so we made it literally a decision. I remember sitting there and saying, we're going to get rid of our other work. We have four months runway to make the Salesforce thing work. And if it doesn't, by January 2014, we'll, we'll go back. We'll go back and figure it out, right? So I think part of this taking risk is, you know, for me, it's always having a plan B and plan C probably, and that's how you offset the risk, right? You kind of hedge against some of that. And it's like, well, what's the worst case scenario if I, I start Torrent and I don't go to this other firm? My wife was like, well, in six months, I'm pretty sure you could probably call them back up and, you know, with your resume and experience in consulting, get a job. I'm like, yep, that's plan B, right? Going all in on Salesforce, plan B was, well, we can always go back and probably do website development and this other work that we were good at. It just wasn't going to you know, being a quote unquote technology consultant with no specialization doesn't get you very far. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think the evolution of what we did kind of evolved from help social, you know, help businesses become social, socially responsible to website development, e-commerce to then Salesforce. And that was all in about a year and a half period. Um, and I'm making it sound much smoother than it really was. And, you know, at the time it was way more, you know, it felt heavier and bigger and, you know, these big decisions we have to make. And so, um, but, you know, really what you see today was the, the output of that kind of third evolution, which was we're going to be a Salesforce consulting partner. I went and got certified so we could get registered as a partner. And really in 2014 is when we started to take off, you know, once we had made that decision. So you had mentioned uh, having a plan B, having a plan C. I want to dive a little bit deeper on that because the, the, the popular thing for people to say is the burn the ships, right? You can't have a plan B or you won't succeed. So burn the ships and be all in on something. So talk to me a little bit more about that because you've mentioned calculated risk taking. You mentioned having plan Bs and plan Cs. So why do you see the value in that and, and weigh that a little bit in your mind compared to the the all in burn the ships type approach. 
Well, I, I think it's going in on all in on your plan A, but knowing if plan A doesn't work, you have a fallback plan. So I'm all about going all in. I mean, we went all in on Salesforce. It had it failed. And we had people saying like, ah, oh, mate, what if Salesforce gets bought, right, by Microsoft or Google? What are you going to do then? Or is your company going to fall apart? So I, I mean, I had a lot of those conversations. Um, but I'm all about going all in and niching on something. I think it's amazing. And I, I, I think entrepreneurs that don't do that really struggle. Uh, so I, I'm even inside of Salesforce, we've niched about three more times along the way. We are very niche inside Salesforce now. Um, and who knows in another year, we might even be more niche, but the more you niche as Seth Godin talks about in that book, the more you niche, the more you can charge, the more demand you'll have because you'll be the one person that knows bam, 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 bam. Right. And so, um, anyway, so I think having a plan B is just smart and wise. I mean, even going into this COVID, you know, the pandemic and navigating that, you know, we sat down in the middle of March and spent a couple of weeks, like pretty much blowing up our financial plan for the year and rebuilding something like we, we came up with this five step plan that we rolled out to the company at the end of March. And it was like, Here's here's our you know here, here's the the trap doors along the way that if we get to this point we'll do this and if we get to this point we'll do that and so it gave us a pretty solid marching plan and it knew what we needed to do to make Plan A successful um, but we also knew what the worst case scenario was so anyway I'm all about going in all in I I think it just it probably takes a little stress away if you know you have a backup plan you know and the backup plan may not what I found is you usually don't need the backup plan. Like if, because if you're smart enough to have a backup plan, you're probably smart enough that your first plan is going to work or at least some variation of that. Failure is my favorite F word um, mm. outside of the other one that I can't say on this, <laughs> which comes out often. But it, it truly is. I, I grew up and I was always terrified and I did a lot of writing in college and everything. And I was one big thing was always failure. Oh, failure, failure. I was terrified of failure. I embrace failure like nobody's business because I believe that if you fail, you're learning something new. Mm. And if it's uncomfortable and you don't know how to do it, you're learning something new. And anytime I feel stagnant, I'm bored. So I like that fear and that <laughs> failure and I'm, okay, we're con- how do we change it, fix it, and grow? It's, it's fun now. Yeah. So failure in my how, how have you been able to do that? Because we've talked a lot about culture. How have you been able to do that in your business to talk to leadership? and actually have them embrace that too. Because it's one thing to do it for yourself and say, all right, failure, fear, this that's gonna fuel me. I'm, I'm gonna be able to push through it. It's gonna make me better. The brand's gonna be better. But how can you convey that and get buy-in from people where you're now asking them to be vulnerable? That's a good, so in the sense of a rebrand, like letting them? Yeah, so anytime when you're interacting with these with leadership and, and you're saying, all right, we're gonna push the envelope a little bit and. It's, it's not it's going to be 100% per 100 buy-in. Right. How do you get them to be okay with that? Something came to mind when you said that, which I'm just going to have to share because I have this saying at the office. I say it's only awkward the first time, <laughs> which can apply to anything, right? Sure. So I always remind them, hey, listen, it's going to be awkward at first, and then we're going to get used to it, okay? We're going to do this together. Yeah. We, we're going to guide you through this process. At no point in time are you going to be left out to the wolves. And one of our missions, to, our missions is to make mavens of our peers and partners. And maven meaning connoisseur, expert, it means I'm going to make sure you have every ounce of knowledge that I have so that you can be a maven, right, in your role. So I always make sure that we walk with our clients through the branding process. They have every tool they need to truly tell that story, and they never really have that fear about them, I like to hope. 
Um, and we also track along the way how, how we're doing, how they're feeling. But we give them all the tools of the rollout internally, the training, the knowledge, and then as we roll out externally, talking points, holding statements, whatever they need to truly make that brand successful. Yeah. And, and a lot of times it is training. It's leadership training. It's how do I use this brand in every area of my organization. We're talking to HR and showing them how they can use it in their newsletter, how they can speak to their people. We're talking to sales and how they can use it. So I think if you do that the right way and use the Maven method, no. Yep, that's <laughs> but, right. but truly that piece of it, that training, um, then you don't necessarily have that same kind of fear. And even though we are a little bit edgy, we also kind of pull back in a little bit. So we use stats to prove why we've made a yeah. choice. Yeah. So we're coming to a board, for instance, and we're saying, hey, we chose red or green because 86% of, of your respondents are choosing that. You know, yeah. So I think that helps create less fear. Yeah, put some numbers and facts mm -hmm. behind it. Absolutely. Makes sense. What about inside the business uh, with the, your team? When you're trying to push the envelope in, in your brand and your company, not necessarily who you're helping outside, uh, was that a sticking point with your employees to say, hey, we're going to push the envelope, we're going to get uncomfortable? I'm looking at my employee over right. there. <laughs> no, um, yeah, I think uh, it's funny. I, I feel like it's just known that I'm going to be crazy okay. and they're, they're used to it and it's vulnerable. Yeah. And I we're, think we're getting head nods. Yes. Because so I, I, I would say like that I, I think that. I'd like to think, if you ask my employees what they would say about me, is that I, I love throwing every idea at the wall and every idea is celebrated. So they're just used to us pushing the envelope and throwing everything out there and then we whittle it down and as a team decide what makes sense. Um, and then I think you can only really do that if you're a vulnerable leader and if you put yourself completely out there. And I, I also like to say that we're different in the sense that I'm extremely transparent with them. We, um, I share all my revenue goals with them. They know what number we're trying to hit for the month. I don't hide it. I mean, aside from salaries, we share everything. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that builds a different team as well because I, I truly believe I'm building Haven Creative to pass it on to them. You know, yeah. it's going to be a part of their that that legacy. I'm right. taking care of them and their futures and pushing them through their passions. So yeah, you you mentioned Brene Brown a little bit earlier. Talk about being brave, vulnerability, transparency. You're hitting on a lot of a yeah. lot of what, what she talks a lot about. Um, I haven't even I, read a full book through. I'm sorry, Renee. I'm halfway, but I heard her speak, and that's why I that's, felt really inspired. No, that's perfect. Um, but those are those are superpowers in business because so yes. many people put up walls and they're. Chris, I alluded at the uh, the intro about your the books you've published, the, uh, the articles mm -hmm. you've published, things like that. Obviously that's a massive volume of, of published content, um, especially in the, in the written form. So discuss with us a little bit what your writing process looks like. Is this something that you do during bouts of inspiration? Is it something that you do on a daily basis? What does that look like? Uh, you know what? I'm glad we're talking about this. And I, I never, I never get to talk about this enough because the, um, one of the great things about raising up a company with the kind of success that Avid Exchange has had over 20 years is I've got a lot to say. I mean, I got a ton to say. And the reason I started teaching at the universities was so I could kind of help cultivate that voice and become a great communicator or a better communicator. I don't know if I'm great at anything because I want to continue to approve it. But the, the writing, the, the only way that I'm able to kind of figure out exactly what I'm doing is if I can get it down on paper and have other people react to it in a negative or a positive way. So the 500 articles, most of them came out as blogs 
And the reason why I did a blog is I had this whole routine is that I do a blog and the blogs, the topics that got interest, I would actually turn those into eBooks. And then the eBooks, I would take a collection of the eBooks and I would turn it into a book book. And then the book book was the thing that I went to conferences and talked about. So the end game on that whole thing was I was just trying to figure out a way, a mechanism that I could filter it through people's opinions on what they could, what they reacted positively to. So I could stand up at a conference and give them good sage advice. You know, I felt like if it went through that whole loop and sometimes it would take years to do that, then I could go to a conference and talk about it and, and know I was going to impact somebody's life with that. Yeah. It was, I mean, it's been stress tested multiple times, right? The, the yep. ones, the blogs that got the interest moved on to the next phase, the eBooks that got the interest moved into the book. Yep. So it, it makes perfect sense that by the time you get to the actual stage where you're talking to people, it. it's already gone through multiple hoops that you know there's an interest or, or a level of, uh, of curiosity. Yeah. I don't, and I'm like, I take it from my attorney friends. I have lots of attorney friends that, you know, you never ask the question that you don't know the answer to. You prepare for the, you win the trial before you ever get into the trial. And I felt like that was the same way. And by the way, Stacy, right. You can tell, you can tell those people who are just kind of winging it. They're like, well, I had a thought in my head of what I wanted to do. And now that I stand up here, it's not working out very well. And you know, I don't, I don't, um, I'm not going to do that. It's just too important. So I want to make sure I got a good message and that's how I do it. Stress test is a great way of explaining it because quite frankly, all, all the ideas that I have, which I have tons of ideas, some are just completely ridiculous. I do have a saying that there's no such thing as an, un, uh, uh, an unrealistic goal, only unrealistic time frames. What I'm trying to do here on this podcast is do as many uh, quotes that can go on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker as possible. That's, that's my job here. But, um, you know, there's just, there's just the time and the place for things. And I want to try to find out what's the most relevant thing that we can talk about. And, and I got I to gotta check my ego to make sure that I'm just not talking about the things that I want to talk about. What, what sends you into this really close relationship where I start investing in you is what something that Stacy does really well. And it's that if I give her an idea and if the idea is any good, she goes and takes it and amps it. Right, Stacy? Yeah, it's interesting. So our conversations are usually about an hour and I think this is important from understanding how successful mentorship, what it looks like. So one of the things that organizations do unintentionally, but is they pair experience with inexperience. And what that does is it totally discounts the inexperience, the fresh eyes, the new perspective that the organization actually needs. And it, it teaches them conform to this experienced person's ways. And uh, one of the things, and it's my biggest, um, I go into companies and I say, throw out your mentorship program. It is ineffective and it's going nowhere. What we have to do is build a culture of mentorship. Because here's the thing, most people don't really know how to be a mentor or what mentorship is. When I do a presentation, I ask, 
all right, so what is mentorship? And there's never any, any definition. I've never had a definition yet. And so one of the things we have to do is take out the complications. You know, it can't be this program that HR demands you do. And that's what I love about how our relationship, Chris, has just evolved because yeah. it isn't consistent. It isn't a regular monthly meeting. It's a, I have a need. I think Chris Elmore might have a situation or an experience that he's been there before. And then I take his wisdom or his insight and I throw away whatever I don't want to use. I figure out what works for me and I start to add my own personality. And I, it's so the, the great example of this is Chris, why don't you share, um, your strategy for overcoming, um, overcoming breaking your personal cycles or pitfalls well i can't remember it oh. <laughs> all right so what no, is I, I, hey, Stacey, I, why don't you, you share chris's <laughs> well yeah why don't you share where you are with it? and i'm going to tell you what it started as okay a good one so when we first met one of the things he told me was as an entrepreneur you have to recognize where your shortcomings are and then build strategies to overcome them well, at the time, I was starting to build this big uh, community in Charlotte of people who needed mentorship. So I figured if I could take that and recognize the patterns among the members of the community and then build strategies for how to help them overcome those difficulties, then perhaps I would have a new mentorship model. And it was in that that I started to identify there were six different times in our careers or businesses where we could learn from someone who had already been there, add our own flavor to it, and then apply it to our career or business. And it was, it was so profound, but it was him sharing what he knew and me applying it to what I saw. Can you discuss some of the different skill sets that you've seen that are necessary for running a small size business versus a mid-size or a large size, things like that. What are, what are some of those differentiating skill sets that you've seen? Well, it's interesting. When you're running a small business, you have to really understand what everybody does. You don't necessarily have to know how they do it, but you have to be able to understand what they do. And you're telling them, you know, you're, you're, you're leading them yourself. You're working with them on their, you know, on, on what they do. In some cases, you're simply telling them what to do and others, you're setting goals and visions and making, you know, getting them to, to motivating them to do what you want. Um, and it's very easy when a small company to do that. It all runs on personality. It all runs on, on your, your personableness, your, your individual warmth, things like that. And, and I think that, um, not to say you have to be warm and fuzzy to have a small business, but you better get along with everybody. If, you're, um, if you can't do that, you're gonna have a lifetime of turnover and it's gonna hold you back. And so you have to have that ability to relate and work with, with a small group of people. Um, when you get to the medium-sized business, then you're a whole lot of uh, more, more leadership, more motivation, more goals, uh, making sure they know what to do and a lot more time spent making sure they did what they're supposed to be doing, that they are working towards the goals and doing, working, doing the work independently. You also have to bring in a little more complex processes. You have to, uh, well, they can't say complex. You have to start thinking about using the tools of lean manufacturing and more quality tools 
Whereas with the smaller company, it becomes a much more individualized and personal ability. Mm-hmm. The medium side, you've got to bring, bring those tools in. Um, a large size, you've got to have them absolutely, but, but you do need them in a mid-sized business as well. Um, the biggest problem I find with people moving up from small to medium or medium to large businesses is that very famous line of the people who got, to, got you here can't get you where you're going. And, you know, some people just have limited bandwidth. But the reality is the difference between managing in a mid-sized company is your managers are managing people telling them what to do. Basically what you would be doing in a small business. Mm-hmm. When you get to a larger business, now you have, for lack of a better term, managers managing managers. So each of them, you may call them directors, it doesn't matter which vice president, it doesn't matter what you call them, but they have to get things done through others who are still getting things done through others. And the hardest leap I've found for, for people that have management roles in a company, whether they're in a small or mid-sized company, is being able to basically manage a manager. And those are the people that can't get you where you're going is they have an inability to work with others and, and, and allow them to be managing other people. There's a tendency, and I've had it many times in my career, where I manage through people. You know, I just go right through them. Yeah, they're your people. You tell them what to do. You know, well, I tell them what to do. <laughs> okay? Yeah. It's very hard to resist that. And in terms of a leadership, that, that, that's, that's the big challenge. When you get to the larger company, you have a lot more tools at your disposal. You have a lot more tools to work with. You can make, um, like I said, you learn lean process can work great for you. Make bigger use of KPIs um, to help you manage and and understand what's going on. The midsize, you use KPIs. You use KPIs always, but they indicate different things to you. They're giving you different information. Yep. Um, But that's what I found. And, and, I always told people though, especially in the larger company companies that, that, that I've run, um, 10% of my job was ceremonial. Okay. So, uh, probably um, 60 to 70% was motivational. Okay. When I was asked by um, uh, some people at, when, I, when I went to business school and I went to business school under a program with a large uh, English company. Um, so I, you know, I didn't get my MBA out of college. It came later and they were interviewing me for going to the program and they said, tell me what your job is. You're president of this company. What, what's your job? And my answer was cheerleader. (laughs) I didn't know if I had the right answer or not. And I did have the right answer because they were all about transformational leadership and they knew I was doing it. (laughs) So, I mean, it it was quite an entertaining, uh, adventure, but you, you spend a lot of time as a cheerleader. When you get your team aligned and they were all rowing in the right direction, I mean, it, it's, it's wonderful. Organizational alignment, you, you spend all, if you can get it properly aligned, you become a cheerleader. 